Hello there. Welcome to Smashing the Ceiling, the podcast that showcases the lives of women who've achieved amazing things in their careers, some who've got a really cool or unusual job, and some who've just had a really interesting life. I'm your host, Naomi Mella, and each week I'll be sitting down with one woman to hear about the ceilings they've smashed through in their lives. The glass ceiling isn't all about corporate boardrooms, international skyscrapers and towering stilettos. Although don't get me wrong, I love a good high heel. There are women breaking down barriers everywhere, shattering stereotypes and forging their own unique and wonderful career paths. We're here to share their stories with you, to let you know how they got where they are and how their mentors, mistakes and motivations have led them to achieve the things they have. We're an independent podcast, so if you'd like to support us, please follow, rate and review wherever you listen. Everyone asks you to do this, I know, but it really does make a difference and we'd love it if you could. Hello, hello, and welcome to season six of Smashing the Ceiling. You might have thought that we had disappeared forever, and I know it's been ages, but surprise, I'm back again talking to more women with brilliant careers to encourage you on your working journey. The rapturous applause and laughter isn't for me, it's for my guest, a woman that I've known for a few years after she was shortlisted for the first International Women's Podcast Awards back in 2021. Her name is Samantha Baines, and it's fitting that she's the first guest this season because she's been the first woman to do a few other things too. Sam is an award-winning comedian, podcaster, author, actor, broadcaster, and general legend. In 2014, she won the Funny Women Awards and subsequently went on to scoop the 2015 Watch the Frock Best Newcomer Award. Sam was the first ever woman to reach the finals of the UK Pun Championships. Yes, they're a thing. And we speak extensively in this interview about being a woman in comedy and her experiences in the early days. But that's not all. As an adult, Sam experienced hearing loss and is now a deaf activist, hearing aid wearer and an ambassador for the Royal National Institute for the Deaf. She's written two children's books, Harriet vs. the Galaxy and The Night the Moon Went Out, And her new book, Living with Hearing Loss and Deafness, is available to pre-order now. As well as all this, she's got an award-winning podcast, The Divorce Social, discussing, surprise, surprise, divorce. And her acting credits include The Crown, Call the Midwife and Magic Mike Live in the West End. There is nothing this woman can't do. We covered so much ground in this chat, which was recorded absolutely ages ago, live at the podcast show in London, which is why you may hear a little bit of background noise here and there. But there was so much good stuff that I cut our conversation in two. And this is part one. Enjoy. Tell me about growing up and wanting to become an actress, because you went to Exeter and to drama school but how early did you know that you wanted to be an actor have you always been like a little performer yeah annoyingly yeah like there's a photo of me when I'm a toddler um I must be like two or three and I've got my arms out in a like ta-da pose um in my living room that my mum took of me and I used to dress up and put on little shows for my mum and her friends when they came around to do like dinner parties and stuff so yeah, I think 
I was very annoying to my friends who never knew exactly what they wanted to do, like, you know, a lot of normal people. But I, yeah, knew from very early age that I really liked performing. My mum sent me to a drama club to get some of my performing energy out. And I really loved it. And I think from there, I remember I used to watch EastEnders. This is 100% true and so strange if you actually think about it. I used to watch EastEnders and then go upstairs and I had a wardrobe with like four mirrored doors on it. And I used to do what I'd seen the actresses do on EastEnders back to myself in the mirror to see if I could make it look like they did it. Um, so that's, you know, weird little Sam. That's, that's how she spent her time. And were your parents in theatre acting, anything like that? Or were you kind of stray gene? No, I'm a stray. Like when, when I said I wanted to go to uni to study drama, they were very worried about me. They sort of knew it was going in that direction because I'd been in all the school plays and, you know, everything like that. They were worried because my mum's an accountant and now she's CEO of a charity, but she trained in accounting. And my dad used to work for like the council. So they were really worried that doing drama wouldn't be a proper career for me. So I actually had to do a presentation to them on why I wanted to do a drama degree and all the skills I'd learn and the jobs that I could then apply those skills to that were like sensible, not just being an actor. So yeah, they were, they were a bit worried for me. But once I went to uni and then drama school, they obviously realized how committed I was. But I think that is a kind of legit thing for a parent, isn't it? That you know, being an accountant is a very stable job. You're never going to be unemployed. You have lots of opportunities, you know, there's loads of jobs out there. And I think that kind of uncertainty for your kid of being like, you can see that. But what, interestingly, what sort of skills did you think you might be able to apply to other jobs? Because I mean, making your presentation, excellent. Yeah. I mean, if anyone is listening and they need to convince someone that they should be an actor, there are loads of transfer, but like genuinely people love people who've done drama degrees um, for all sorts of industries. You know, sales is an obvious one, but communication skills, teamwork, because you're putting on plays together and things like that. I had to write essays, you know, um, and do a dissertation still for my degree. So language skills. And obviously I write books now today. Um, honestly, so many things. And you, you really learn more about yourself, I think, doing drama than possibly any other subject at degree level. I think at uni, you learn a lot about yourself generally because you're at that age where you're kind of experiencing new things and getting drunk in the student union. Um, but during drama, like you have to delve deep, like a lot of the activities in class were looking at the history of drama and then how you can apply that to modern life, which is taking a structure of something and applying it to what you're doing it now is useful in any job, but also opening up your emotions so that you can use them in acting. It's like three years of therapy, um, but you come out really confident and able to do jazz hands. Um, they don't actually teach a class in jazz hands, but it's something that develops naturally just throughout the process. But um, yeah, I think it, now I can see why my parents were worried and I think I'm glad they were because it made me think about it properly. But at the time, I was like, why won't they support my passion? Um, but yeah. And so when you finished drama school, 
I have a perception and I think there's quite often a perception that it's really hard to get work and it's really hard to make a living in as an actor and lots of people come out of drama school and very few people make it make it in inverted commas did you take quite a sort of methodical approach or how did you go about kind of starting off in the world of work and actually just making sure that you could eat and pay your rent yeah so um that perception is true (laughs) for 99 percent of people you know there were people not in my year but there were people that left drama school went straight into like a big job oh really okay or were found in the middle of drama school and then left drama school to go and do this big job it is funny because i went to central school of speech and drama which was brilliant because we had sessions where people would say look it's going to be really hard you're going to have to do these things but when you're in that place you think yeah but not for me yeah i'm different like i'm special so actually, yeah, for the rest of my class, I'm sure it'll be really hard. But for me, I'll just swan on out into like some incredible Netflix. Netflix wasn't around then, but some incredible series. Um, and that didn't happen. So actually, all of the things that I'd learned in those classes then became useful. But when you leave drama school, it's very rare that you will go into full time being an actor. So you straight away get a money job. Um, and I actually have never been a waitress because I know that's the cliche. I've never even worked in a pub. I used to work in shops. And then I worked, um, when I left drama school, I worked in an art gallery in Heathrow Airport. Art gallery glamour, Heathrow Airport, slightly less so. <laughs> well, no, it was extra glamorous because people were, it, we were next to the first class lounge. Oh, so it was like okay. big pieces of art, like £20,000 for a painting. Um, and that's actually where I met Channing Tatum for the first time in that art gallery. He came in and we was interested in a horse sculpture. And the manager of the art gallery was like, oh, let me get a picture of you and Channing. And at the time I sort of knew who he was, but I wasn't like a huge fan or anything but I knew he was like a Hollywood actor so she took this photo of me and Channing in the art gallery and then years later which I'm sure we'll touch on when I got to work with him I found the picture and I showed it to him and we create recreated that picture you know 10 years later when we were working together and of course he remembered meeting you (laughs) of course (laughs) I think he did remember the art gallery but because of the horse sculpture not because of me did he buy the sculpture I don't I don't think he did in the end all of their sales skills from acting. I know. Um, no, but yeah, so I had, I had normal, normal people jobs, um, normally in shops and then in an art gallery. And I also, very weirdly, worked at Heathrow Airport in the Royal and VIP suites. So I used to look after, you know, the King and Queen of Sweden when they traveled and Prince Harry and Prince William and all of that. So I've had an array of jobs. I feel like there's a whole other side to Heathrow Airport that most normal people don't sexy side to Heathrow Airport with art and royals um but yeah so I I did stuff weird stuff like that and all the while got an agent out of drama school and then they were putting me up for auditions and actually my first agent is so funny how things come full circle like the Channing moment my first agent the agency was owned by Kelly Bryan uh from the band Eternal 
and she still owns that agency today I'm not with them anymore but she sort of gave me my first shot in the industry and I recently went on Loose Women and she wasn't on unfortunately but I did see her at the Royal Television Society Awards because she was nominated for um, her role in Hollyoaks and I was like you gave me my first shot in the industry by being my agent and I said thank you so Eternal, for anyone not aware, is a complete throwback to the 90s. Uh, excellent girl band. And if you are about the same age as me and Sam, uh, then you will know exactly what we're talking about. And if you're not, maybe go and look them up. They were so good. I feel so like at good. the time they were huge. Yeah. And then I don't know how people aren't like millennials aren't aware. Of, no, I'm a millennial. Gen Z or whatever it is aren't aware of them now. They were basically the British Destiny's Child. Yes. Exactly. But actually, just going back to what you were saying before about juggling, you know, having multiple jobs, I actually think when you're in your early 20s, managing multiple things at once and not having a sort of standard nine to five also teaches you a lot, not just about yourself, but about uh, managing your time, other people, your budgets, all that sort of stuff, actually, in terms of building your career. It's quite difficult. And I think actually as a way into the world of work, it's not the easiest way to do it. And it's sometimes seen as being a bit flunky for want of a better word, or you haven't got a proper job. But actually being a creative freelancer with multiple things going on at any one time, I actually think it's so much harder than just taking a job in an office and going every day for eight hours. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's difficult things about both, but uh, it's funny nowadays people say to me I can't believe you do so many things how do you do so many things and I guess I've always done it you know I'm not just an actress I'm not just a comedian or a broadcaster or an author or a writer you know all of these things I do because I'm so used to having a portfolio career from when I left drama school because I wasn't able to do just one thing and live off it and actually from you know that came out of necessity because I couldn't, you know, get a full-time acting job straight out of drama school, which I would have loved. Um, it came of necessity, but actually it's, it's brought so much richness now to my jobs. And I feel like they really influence each other in, in positive ways. And there are things that I've learned from being an author that I will then bring to, you know, doing comedy and, and vice versa. And, I couldn't imagine my life if I didn't have all these kind of strands now. And I'm so glad that I do. And I think that's what, you know, being a young out of work actor taught me. <laughs> I wanted to just chat about stand up comedy because you have done both stand up and edited broadcast comedy as well, tele comedy, etc. How do you, did you get into the stand up circuit to begin with? Because I know you've had multiple shows at the fringe, you've won awards, you've done stuff with other people, you've done stuff on your own. How did you get started in that? And what was it like the first time? Well, so stand-up was something I never thought I'd do when I left drama school. When I left drama school, I was interested in screen acting. And that's actually what I studied at Central. Was It was an MA in acting for screen. And when I left Exeter, a lot of the focus had been on like theatre and like punch drunk 
went to Exeter, which is this incredible oh theatre company. Sleep no more, best thing I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. So, so that was really the focus there. And I was like, that's cool. I'm glad I've done it, but I really am excited by acting for screen. So that's why I went to, to drama school. And then I left and I was obviously going for these telly auditions. And when you start out, you're going for like one-line parts in telly. And it's very hard to audition for a one-line part because you put so much emphasis in this one line and then you watch it back and you're like, people would never say one line like that, but you're like trying to convey the whole history of the character in one line, which is, yeah, not normal life. But all all the while I was feeling, I guess, frustrated creatively because I wasn't getting parts. When I first started, I was going for auditions for like commercials and I was in a show on Channel 4 called Last Party at the Palace where I had no lines and it was like a reconstruction of a debutante ball. And I was like the wallflower character. So it was lots of silent acting. Um, But I was feeling frustrated creatively. And then I saw this audition for a sketch group, literally straight out of drama school. Um, I think they had a different name at the time. But we, when I I auditioned and joined, and we were called Vinegar Knickers. It's a great name. Uh, Such a good name. I mean, we did the Edinburgh Fringe, and I remember handing um, a lady with grey hair the flyer that said Vinegar Knickers, and she went, "Oh!" and handed it back to me and looked disgusted. Um, So, so yeah, I we we used to write stuff, sketches together, and perform them at comedy gigs, and we did a couple of um, Edinburgh Fringe festivals for a month together, and. that was really fun but I I felt quite sort of stuck in writing sketches and and writing for you know the three of us very specific characters um but I I definitely enjoyed it I learned a lot and then we all sort of started to go slightly different ways um and I wanted I already had loads of contacts in comedy so I was like well I guess I should do stand-up because you know then I don't have to plan a schedule with two other people. I can just go when I'm free. But I was very scared. And also I knew some people in the comedy industry from being in Vinegar Knickers and we were doing quite well. And the last Edinburgh we did, you know, got really good reviews. So I didn't then want to come back in doing stand-up and be awful and everyone be like, oh, have you seen that girl from Vinegar Knickers doing stand-up? She's awful. Um, So I did a comedy, a weekend comedy course to kind of, teach me or make me do my first gig and that was incredible and I did my gig and it went amazingly because everyone in the audience was my friends or the friends of the other people so they were like super supportive but I remember being like oh my god I'm a genius like I'm so good at comedy I'm just a natural um but it was really fun and then I wanted to do more of it and then I started doing open mic gigs and I realized that oh, this is, maybe I'm not just a complete natural. I might have to do some work and write some more material. And so then I kind of, yeah, carried on and then ended up doing two Edinburgh Fringe solo hours, um, which I sold out the whole run of both times and did extra shows. And that was a real shock for me because I remember I was doing, I was in the sketch group and I was doing um, Edinburgh and stuff there. And there were three of us. And so the idea that people would pay a ticket to see the three of us 
and it was a show because it was sketches. I was like, yeah, I get that. But the idea that people might buy a ticket just to see me talk for an hour was like a super scary thing. Even though I'd been doing stand-up all over the country, I definitely didn't believe that it was going to happen or that anyone would buy a ticket. So I remember when I sold out that whole run and I did it at the Pleasance Courtyard and um, and that's like quite a comedy venue. And when I was in Vinegar Knickers, you know, we could never get a slot at the Pleasance Courtyard because it's kind of sought after. So I remember doing my debut show at the Pleasance Courtyard and selling out was like a huge moment for me because I just couldn't believe that people would pay to see me talk for an hour um and then I did the second show and I did a UK tour and it was a really fun time but I do think I started to get frustrated by stand-up comedy and you know I don't I don't do live comedy at the moment and I think the reason for that is I got frustrated that everything I write had to be in punchlines and and I felt like I I wanted to explore some slightly more serious subjects. And I do think you can make serious subjects funny. But for me, I also wanted to have a bit of serious chat in there, followed by a joke. And when you're kind of doing a stand-up show, in inverted commas, you're expected to have punchline after punchline, not serious talk for a bit and then a joke. So I was feeling frustrated and I guess that's where my podcast, The Divorce Social, eventually came from, which is a combination of serious chat and some funnies. Um, but also I got a hearing aid and I started to find live environments really overwhelming from a sound perspective and quite stressful actually for me and my hearing. And I found that they, they it was just knackering me. You know, I was gigging three, four nights a week and I'd need to sleep all day because just the listening is so tiring when you have to try. Um, and there was so much going on and also the anxiety of like, oh, I'm going to be on stage and the adrenaline. Um, so it was really taking me a lot out of me. And I guess the pandemic gave me time to think about me and my mental health and I have anxiety. And even though I do miss that aspect of comedy. I don't miss how it made me feel. There's so much to unpack there. And I definitely want to talk about lots of the things that you've mentioned. But one thing I was just going to touch on briefly was about women being funny, because you know, we talk about smashing ceilings on this podcast. And you know, there's plenty of them that you've had a crack at. And- I'll give anything a go. <laughs> Show me a ceiling. I'll poke it with a stick. You fit right oh, in my face. <laughs> just shatter it. Um, But I think there was this old perception that women don't succeed in comedy because they're not funny, which I think is such bullshit. Did you ever encounter that? And what was your sort of experience, I guess, of being a woman in comedy at a time when it was less common for women to be very successful comedians than perhaps it is now? Obviously, there's people like Bridget Christie and lots of other brilliant women comedians around. But a few years ago, it was a little bit less... Um, common than it is perhaps yeah so I did a comedy competition called funny women and I was in the final of that in 2014 before that I'd been gigging on and off but that was really like my entry into getting proper paid comedy gigs 
So back in 2014, there were pe- there were women on the telly um, who were funny, but not as many of them as as we see now. And that doesn't mean they weren't around. They were and are and are brilliant. They just weren't getting the airtime. So it was still a weird world. People were definitely promoters were more open to women being on bills. But I remember around the time there was like Jenny Collier, who's a, a female comedian and a friend of mine, she was cancelled from a gig on International Women's Day because the promoter said that he already had too many women on the bill. <laughs> so he needed to cancel her to get one off. And like that was in the press and everything. So stuff like that was happening at that time. And and I did a lot of gigs especially when you're talking about like the club circuit and club gigs. At that time, I was doing gigs, perhaps not in London, but the regional gigs that I was the only woman on the bill. And there was a very macho environment backstage. And, you know, I had horrible things happen to me. I spoke about it in an article actually recently in The Guardian, but I won a competition, I think just before the Funny Women competition, against all men in a lineup and I sort of won the it was like a night of comedy and someone wins the night I won and the the promoter who the guy who organized the gig came over and he was a guy and a white straight old man and he said we always pick the ones with the big tits to win and then all the male comedians who were also on that bill that I'd beaten were standing around and then all laughed. And it was just, you know, and that wasn't a strange occurrence on the scene at that time. And that was, you know, oh, it's only a joke. Can't you take a joke? But you've just undermined me winning the whole competition. It's always only a joke. Because you've made a joke that I only won because I had big tits. And also, I do have quite big tits, but I was the only person with tits. So there wasn't even a tit competition. (laughs) You know, it was just me and some no tits. Um, So, yeah, stuff like that. And I was backstage at a gig once and with all men. And uh, we we were meant to get a lift back to the station on the way home. And they said I'd have to sit on someone's lap because I was the only girl. I was bent over by... By a male MC in a in a backstage room, and he pretended to like fuck me from behind. I don't know if I can swear yeah, on your podcast. Yeah. Uh, as as a joke, you know, like that's not funny. And in front of all the other male comedians, you know, Gosh. it wasn't on stage; it was backstage. But like, you know, imagine being fake fucked from behind, and then you have to go on stage and convince a room full of people that you know, you're confident, you can make them laugh, they're safe in your hands. Like it's, it was a very weird time. And I remember thinking, I can't give up because more women in comedy means it will be better for women in comedy in the future. And there were so many times that I did want to give up just because of those environments. And I did a competition called the, um, UK pun championships and I have to say it wasn't it was very nice backstage and everything like that at that but I was the only woman in the final and I was the first woman 
they've ever had in the Pun Championship ever final. And you know, they it wasn't it hadn't been started for like generations before. It was it, but it was a few years old. Yeah, yeah. And this was in like 2017, I think. Um, and I don't. I love puns and I love writing puns, but I'm really bad at delivering puns because I just think that they're like grown funny. And, and some people, and I don't think all puns are like that because the other contestants, you know, crafted really excellent puns, but the ones that I write are like grown funny and that's how I deliver them. So I didn't really want to do the final, but I thought I have to do it because no other woman's done it before. And if I can do it this year, then maybe there'll be two women next year. Um, and so, so yeah, I did, I didn't win, obviously, but I did do that. And I was glad I did it in the end, but there, I definitely felt this weird pressure of like, I have to keep going for women behind me. But there were also, you know, saying all of that, there were lots of lovely gigs and lots of gigs organized by women and non-binary people and trans people that were glorious. Um, and there were lots of amazing times, but it did sort of weigh on me that kind of, I have to keep going. I can't give up and the sexism. And I think later in life, you know, since getting a hearing aid and getting divorced, I've realized that I don't have to do things that I don't want to do. It's a glorious realization to have that, isn't it? I'm glad I did do those things, but I think I'm in a position now where I wouldn't do something because I felt I had to. I have to want to do it. I've had that conversation with a few women on this podcast before about things across the spectrum of work. And I think part of that comes with age as well and just confidence. And I think in your 20s, you're trying so hard to make something of yourself so often and you're like, must succeed. I've got to be something, must do everything. And people please all the time. And actually the capacity to be like, no, that is not cool. I'm not doing that. I don't want to do that. It's an amazing skill to develop and it's an amazing freedom to have. But I do think that sometimes young women think that you can garner that immediately. And some people can, but I do think for a lot of people, and I certainly would put myself in that category, it does just come with time and probably a bit of experience as well. Yeah. And it's weird because for me, it wasn't necessarily people pleasing. It was like I was putting the pressure on myself to be able to create some sort of I don't know I felt like I had to be a trailblazer woman in comedy and so I was putting that on myself yeah and it so it was stressful uh and actually I feel like since I've just let go a bit more and done what I wanted to do you know people now call me a deaf activist um because I I speak publicly about my deaf experience and about my hearing aid and I'm an ambassador for RNID and I never thought I have to be a trailblazer in the deaf community I just wanted to do those things and so I think I can affect kind of more change now by wanting to do it instead of being like I have to do this for the future of mankind also how worthy of me of like <laughs> I need to change the world by being a woman in comedy. No, you don't need to do it all, Sam. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about your deafness and that side of things. Just for the for the benefit of the listeners, you haven't always worn a hearing aid. At what age did you start to develop 
hearing how would you describe it hearing loss hearing loss yeah and thank you for asking that question by the way because a lot of people I think are scared to say how would you describe it and so they'll just go down one route and then actually people might find that term offensive like hearing impaired is a really old-fashioned term that a lot of the deaf community sort of don't like um, but it seems to be the most kind of institutionalized phrase that we have like it's in education systems and things like that so um i do always say to people like we know you're human and i'm human and you might know not know what to call me so just saying how would you describe it is great so thank you so i call mine hearing loss or deafness and and that's deafness with a small d and it tends to be in the uk that deafness with a capital d is um the community who are born into a deaf community and speak predominantly with bsl which is british sign language so i call myself deaf Uh, with a small d and I also say I have hearing loss or I use a hearing aid and I got mine when I was 30 and it's actually it's mind-boggling so now I work with the RNID as their ambassador I've learned so much information um, about just how common it is so one in five people in the UK have some form of hearing loss and it takes on average 10 years for someone to notice signs of hearing loss and do something about it and I am absolutely not an exception to that rule because I had tinnitus, um, a high pitch beep noise from age 12, but I didn't realize that it was tinnitus. So I always thought it was a grommet in my ear. So I had grommets put in when I was a child. So that was a thing. I feel like kids of the 80s, get excuse not to go swimming. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> can't swim. I've got grommets. Um, what are they for? So for anyone that doesn't know, tell me about grommets and what are they for? and why would somebody wear them? Yeah, so I assumed that a grommet was like a little hearing aid that they'd put in my ear because I don't think anyone explains it to you when you're a child. Um, So I was like, oh, I've got an implanted hearing aid in my ear. So when I heard this high-pitched beep, which was actually tinnitus, I was like, that's my grommet. Fast forward to like age 20 something, when I find out that a grommet is just a small plastic tube that they put in your ear to drain fluid from your ear, which a lot of children get because of infections or whatever it might be. So this whole time I thought I had a hearing aid in and I just had a plastic tube in, but I'd been blaming this noise on a plastic tube. That realisation must have been quite a significant one. (laughs) Well, I actually only realised it when I started to get another form of tinnitus, which sounded like like a wavering or a scrabbling noise. And bear with me, because I know it sounds weird, but remember I have anxiety, I mentioned it earlier. I genuinely thought I had some sort of insect living in my ear. And when I was exposed to loud noises, the insect would scrabble around because it'd be like, that's loud. Um, um, so I went to my GP, I mean, bless her, she's so nice, saying, I think something's living in my ear. Because we've all seen those weird YouTube videos where like cut open an ear and then loads of things crawl out or like a spot or whatever it is. Um, so it's she... Certainly possible. Yeah. So she looked in my ear and she was like, nothing's living in there. And it turned out that that is a form of tinnitus. And I never even knew that tinnitus 
had different sounds. I just always thought it was a high pitch, like ringing. Like when you've been in a club all night and you get that kind of total reunion. Yeah, for a couple of I days, thought like yeah. musicians get it or you get it after you've yeah been somewhere loud. And I didn't realize that people had it all the time. And I had this high pitch beep noise all the time. And then I had this wavering noise brought on by loud noises. And I discovered all these other types of tinnitus, like white noise, heartbeats. You know, you can hear, basically if you hear a noise that no one else can hear, which sounds worrying, but it, 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 as long as it's not a voice, it's it's a form of tinnitus. And um, and I at that time, I got involved with the British Tinnitus Society. But my GP, going back to that, I went to see my GP. She said, there's nothing living in your ear, but let's send you for a hearing test just to check that there's nothing else. And at the time, I, I genuinely, I've said this before on podcasts, but I genuinely thought like she must get a bonus or something if she sends you for a hearing <laughs> test. Like I don't need it, but I'll just go because she said. Um, so I went to this audiology place uh, in London and they tested my hearing. And the weird thing uh, about hearing tests is you can't hear what you can't hear which sounds straightforward, but in an eye test, you can see that you can't see, but you can see that bottom line's blurry. In an ear test, you've no idea, in a hearing test, and they play noises and you press a little clicker when you hear the noise. So I came out of this hearing test like, I faced this. I've smashed it. <laughs> They're going to be like, oh my God, are you superwoman? Your hearing's incredible, what? Um, so I came out and sat down. Expect and also I'm quite competitive, so I expected to get full marks. Like I went to a grammar school. Um, uh, I went to a grammar school and I cried because I got no A stars in my GCSEs. Um, so I sat down and the audiologist was like, you have hearing loss in both ears and it's bad enough in one ear that we recommend you need and would benefit from a hearing aid. And I uh, honestly was floored. I did not expect it at all. And now looking back and hearing the 10 years symptoms thing, I'm like, yeah, there were so many times I couldn't hear things. And did you perceive like in company that you would have troubles? You know, if you and I were sitting having a coffee, for example, did you perceive that you didn't hear as well as other people? Or did you just think you could hear people the same as everyone else? Yeah, I just thought that's life. Or that person talks a bit quietly, or um, that person is mumbling, or the TV, this program, the noise is a bit weird, so I'll put the subtitles on, or I can't understand that person on the phone, but it's because they much, it must be a dodgy line, like all of those things that you excuse that build up over time. And, you know, now I use subtitles on the TV, I use my hearing aid every day, I love it, it streams podcasts and um, I'm going to listen back to this on my hearing aid and music and when I go and talk in children's schools about my hearing aid and, and my two children's books which feature deaf main characters I always say when my mum's telling me off I play Beyonce through my hearing aid and she has no idea and I'm just like living life and she's like telling me off um, uh, and I can answer my phone through my hearing aid so I absolutely love my hearing aid now and I realise that I lip read um, and I, that was something that just happened naturally in loud environments for me to be able to hear people and judge and try and guess what people were saying. So, um, it was this whole, not a crisis of identity, but definitely a moment of like, oh, 
is this who I am? I, I've had this for so long, but I've now finally got a diagnosis. And I have to say, a lot of people are, are scared of going for a hearing test. But I would say it makes you feel so much better because you have a reason. And then we, when you want to ask for help, you can because you have like the fact to tell people. You're not just like, oh, I don't like sitting here. For, you know, and they're like, why? And you're like, I don't know. I just don't like it. You can be like, I have a hearing aid. And so it's more useful for me if we can sit over there in the corner where they have lots of soft furnishings that absorb sound. Like having a reason for it all makes so much sense, but it is a bit, is a bit scary. You know, all of a sudden I was 30 and I had a hearing aid and I was, you know, had an invisible disability and I was considered disabled. And, um, I didn't know if I wanted to identify as all of those things, but it was happening to me. And there was also this like, am I aging ahead of my time thing, which a lot of people have a similar experience of that I've spoken to. And you given all these leaflets about hearing loss and they have people with gray hair on them, you know, sitting with their grandchildren. You're like, well, that's not me. What's going on? I definitely felt very othered and very different. And that is why I started working with the charity RNID and kind of meeting people in the deaf community and that and that is the best thing about being deaf is the deaf community um and meeting people who have similar experiences and different experiences and have done amazing things and just are incredible so and how do you feel about all of that now and have your attitudes and kind of thoughts about having a disability being deaf have they changed over a period of time or how do you think that's evolved I love it now. I'm I'm super proud. I mean, I'm quite different. Like my mum does have two hearing aids and hearing loss can run in the family. And she wouldn't say wear a jumper that says I have hearing aids, whereas I would. I guess I'm very proud now because I've, <laughs> I've become an accidental activist, as I call myself, because I've started talking about it. And it started with talking about my hearing loss in stand-up when I was going through it, uh, just as a way to process it. And I guess I've met so many in incredible people in the community and I, I, I don't want people to feel like I did, like other and different and old before your time. And what does this even mean for my life? And am I going to lose my career? It was one big fear because I'd just been in The Crown and Call the Midwife at the time. And I thought, well, I can't be in a 1950s period drama with a modern hearing aid. And if I don't have it, how am I going to be able to hear? And, you know, how am I going to be on the radio and in podcasts if I hear, have a hearing aid? And I'm very happy to say I can still do all of those things. So, yeah, I just don't want other people to be in that place where they feel scared. And, and also meeting with other people in the deaf community and them speaking proudly about the fact that they're deaf, you know, is part of me. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it because it's brought me so many incredible experiences and people. And, you know, it's the reason I started writing children's books, which now I absolutely love. And I can't believe I get to do that. And I feel like it's, it has changed my identity in a, in a really positive way. And on that wonderful note, we are leaving Sam today, but we'll be back with part two where we discuss her ventures into podcasting following her divorce writing children's books with a protagonist that wears hearing aids and starring in Magic Mike Live with Channing Tatum.
That's all for this week. You'll find all the links you need to everything we've discussed in this episode in the show notes that will be sitting right there in front of you on whatever podcast app you use. So do just have a look in there if you want more info or have a sneaky peek at the socials. If you've enjoyed this episode, please just share it wherever you can on your own social media. And if you found the podcast interesting or useful, then please do tell a friend. We're always keen for new listeners. If you can find it in your heart to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or give us a shout out on your socials, then I would love you very much as it helps others to find us. See you next time.